This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Live and Learn. I'm Darshan Johan. Since the implementation of Undi 18 or the lowering of voting age from 21 to 18, the youth have become an increasingly important um, aspect in shaping not just the outcome of elections, but the direction of public policies too. But what role exactly do youths play in shaping politics? Joining me on the show today to help me unpack this is Dr. Jason Pandya-Wood. He's the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jason. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Jason, um, the Malaysian political landscape um, is incredibly messy right now. It's incredibly, incredibly fluid right now. Political parties often focus on posturing and chess beating, especially during election season. Oftentimes, the public policy aspect of politics, which is arguably the most important aspect, gets neglected. How would you describe politics and public policy? That's a really good question. So uh, politics is the, and I like how you describe it, it's that chess beating, <laughs> shouting, the garnering for votes. But politics is that art, that science of how we govern, right? And how governments work, how states work and so on. Uh, public policy is concerned with issues. So it's right. the issues that affect our everyday life. And whenever I talk to people about this, I invite them to think about the many interactions they have with public policy every day. So, you know, you wake up and you put your dustbins out, you go to work, uh, whether you get there by public transport or by car, you shop in particular shops, uh, you make decisions about what you buy. Um, you send your kids to school, you might visit a doctor. These are your daily interactions with public policy. And the reason why the two become quite conflated is obviously politicians want to win on making promises about addressing those public policy challenges. Right. But the study of public policy, the understanding of it has to be separated from politics. Why do you say it has to be separated from politics? Well, I think, I mean, obviously... There's, there's the connection between the political idea, the idea, the idea that gets people motivated behind a public policy issue. I think that's important. So you can't have a, a good conversation about sustainability without the political will to make it happen, right? But I think too often when we talk about public policy, we're constrained by political timeframes. So if I take sustainability as an right. example, this is a generation's challenge. This is something we need to think about now for the next 50 years. You know, this is uh, the decisions we take today and have an impact on my kids, on their kids and so on. And that's not affected by the electoral cycle of when uh, a politician is seeking re-election. Right. It's about a much more thoughtful, considered, evidence-based approach to understanding social change. Right. Is there anything we can learn from more mature democracies with regard to this conversation about politics and public policies? Or will we always have to settle for both? Mm. And what I mean by that is, um, we talk about Malaysia, right? And, and it's it's sometimes heightened to, to crazy levels, right? There's this chess beating, posturing, um, trying to win votes in mm. that sense, um, while the public policy aspect is sort of hidden or, or gets neglected. As long as they can win, win votes, that's sort of sufficient for most politicians. Is there anything we can learn from mature democracies or do mature democracies suffer from the same sort of problems? 
Well, you know what? I'm from uh, a really old democracy right. and we're having our own kinds <laughs> of uh, government turmoil right now. I think it's, um, you know, I'm not sure if it's lessons from mature democracies as lessons from the maturity of public policymaking. Right. So I completely agree with you. I think that debate and that challenge will always go on, right? So you will have the, the wrestling between the ideological ideological positions, vote winning, as well as uh, debates about issues. But if I can point to one really good example, and this one stands out for me whenever I'm talking to anybody about this issue, there's a really small part of the UK, a country called Wales, right? right? And Wales came up with an outstanding piece of legislation called the Future Wellbeing of Generations Act or Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. This is an incredible piece of law because it put into place Uh, a commissioner whose job is to look at every single piece of legislation and ask a really simple question, does this help us to meet our sustainability goals? And what this has done in Wales and why the world is taking notice and talking about it is it has put all the sort of short-term policy thinking on the back burner and it's it's made people think more considered about future decisions. So... You know, um, the politician who runs around, elect me and I'll build that highway. Right. Uh, You know, (laughs) I'll put more cars on the road. You elect me. Uh, That's becoming increasingly hard when there's no justification for that highway, when actually investment in public transport would be a much better way of addressing the broader challenges for the Future Wellbeing Act. So I think there are examples like that where people are sensibly rising above the political fray. It means the politicians can continue to have their squabbling, their chest beating, (laughs) their fighting. But actually the issues are elevated to a sort of level of debate that we can only really dream about. So, Absolutely. What are your thoughts um, on the political consciousness among youths in Malaysia? Um, Based on your observation, um, are Malaysian youth politically conscious? I think it's... um you know what? I, I mean, I've got to say straight away, right? So what I'm in my former life, many years ago, I was a youth worker. Mm-hmm. So I used to work with young people all the time uh, out on the streets in youth clubs. I don't do that so much now. Right. So my temperature reading of young people's views, right, <laughs> is going to be informed by a very select reading, right? right? That reading is my contact with students, with young people in schools, with people who visit the campus, from reading social media, from reading young people's opinions. And I've got to say, by and large, I'm constantly impressed by people's desire to be involved, constantly impressed by their curiosity. So every week, for example, I take a module at the moment called Policy and Persuasion with third year politics students. And I start that session every week with 15 minutes, let's teach Jason. And the point of this is, you know, I've been here two and a a bit years now. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of the young people who've taken this module have been involved in political parties. They've been involved in rallies, campaigns. They've been out and taken action on issues they care about. So their job for those first 15 minutes is to bring the social policy agenda to the classroom and to teach me about what's going on. And every week I've got my notepad out, I'm scribbling down things. It's a real sense that there's, you know, a lot of consciousness amongst this group of young people. Do you notice that there is a difference between today's youth and youths from previous generations? Um, You've been in Malaysia just uh, two and a bit years, Mm. like you mentioned. Um, Perhaps based on 
your readings mm-hmm. and also even if you want to talk about global levels sure. how youths of different generations have changed do you notice that there's a change yeah. among youths I'm um, almost definitely right mm-hmm. so and some of that change is attributable to the ways in which we access information right and the ways in which we can have a conversation with people now there are pros and cons to that so right. so, sh- social media is a really good example right and this opens up people's ability to take action and to have a collective voice on issues that would have been a lot harder so when i was 16 years old if i wanted to protest against racism i would have to uh, join disparate groups of people look out for banners uh, get on a bus go to london and march with say 100,000 people right when the Black Lives Matter uh, protest started, people were all over the world on social media within 24 hours. Absolutely. Millions of voices coming together. Now, what you can argue there is that our ability to communicate and be aware of issues is certainly better than it's ever been before. I would say there are two cautions. Mm-hmm. The first is the depth of the issue is to what extent does that then translate into an educational experience for people? Right. So I can wave a placard and go home, right? But actually, am I changing my behaviours? Am I engaging? Am I voting differently? Uh, does that inform my, my decision-making? And I think the second danger is we can quite quickly fall into echo chambers. Right. So we, we all take comfort, right, in sharing a conversation Mm -hmm. with people who have views the same as us. And this is really important on public policy issues because actually part of the public policy agenda should be to accommodate and engage with as many voices as possible, uh, particularly those most affected by issues. And I'm not always convinced they're the people who are being heard. On the show with me today is Dr. Jason Pandya-Wood, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, University of Nottingham, Malaysia. After the break, I ask him how important are educational institutions or educators and academics in influencing public policy? Keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn. I'm Darshan Johan and on the show with me today is Dr. Jason Pandya-Wood, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, University of Nottingham, Malaysia. And we're talking about public policies and the role of youth in influencing them. So, Dr. Jason, do you think that, um, speaking to your point on echo chambers, um, do you think that we are sort of losing the quote-unquote middle ground because of that, because on the one hand, um, you know, the people who are, again, uh, the more progressive side of things, um, they are becoming perhaps more progressive than their parents at such a rapid pace because of the information and because of the echo chambers, um, you get ideas from different parts of the world. But the same thing can be said about the other side, the Mm. conservative base Mm. as well. Um, You know, they get different types of information um, from within their own echo chambers, right? Whereas, let's say, uh, you know, thinking about my parents' generation or things like that, everybody... There was, let's say, in Malaysia, there's 10 newspapers or five newspapers. Everybody just had to deal with whatever newspapers (laughs) that was. And those were the information available. So I'm wondering if this echo chamber um, uh, effect is making people, is making society move away from the middle ground. Mm. Um, How do you see that? That's a really good question. And I think there's some evidence to say, um, I can't point to Malaysia on this, Mm -hmm. but you can look elsewhere in the world where 
polarization has deepened, right? right? So you see this in the States, for example, um, across voting lines, there's that, that deep polarization. But if we look at how uh, most people identify, most people, so, you know, it's tempting to see Twitter right. Right, as the barometer of public opinion, mm-hmm. and it's really not. Mm-hmm. Most people don't use Twitter. Most people aren't in that world going down the rabbit hole of defending opinions day and right. night and attacking other people. For most people, it's the bread and butter daily daily struggle, the daily mm-hmm. issues that face people's lives. And that's why I guess if I had one wish to kind of counteract some of that polarization and to bring people together is to focus more conversations around public policy issues. Because as soon as you get people onto that agenda, yes, there's some ideological baggage that's that's in there, but actually it gives a more opportunity to have a rational argument. And hey, look, I don't want to take emotion out of this argument because actually emotion helps, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But I certainly want to take some of the angry flair, the idea that nothing's changing, nothing's happening. Um, I've spent the last, I guess, five, six years learning a lot about um, broad-based community organizing. And this is a much more interesting approach to how you deal with the day-to-day kind of resolution of issues. And you come together around common concerns. And what it prioritizes is that in order to make the change you need, you need power. And the way to get power is not to storm the castle, but to build relationships with power. And that's a really different way of seeing it because actually it tends to favor people who want to build those sort of relationships for positive change rather than the lone warrior, the lone activist who's fighting a battle that's very uphill or the people who are comfortable with maintaining the power imbalances in society. Right. Now, speaking of bread and butter issues, what are some of the biggest issues faced by Malaysian youths today according to your research Mm, and observation? Sure. Well, I think they're probably in common with many uh, issues faced by young people all over the world right Right. now. And I think, you know, if you look at young people right now in this moment, we are just coming out of a global pandemic. We don't know the long-term impact of what's happened over these last two years. What we can categorically say is we know how many people have been had a health issue connected to COVID-19. We know how many people have died. We do not yet know the mental health impact of prolonged isolation. We do not yet know the educational uh, consequences of taking kids out of school uh, with inequitable access to technology and uh, uh, different experiences of, of, you know, teaching and learning online. Uh, So that that COVID-19 question, the sort of longer term impact we really need to get to grips with. And young people I talk to say there are some prolonged issues there. I think the economic challenges we face right now, the precarity of the economy, the the sort of uncertainty looming over all all economies. So from the UK and its its sort of quantitative easing agenda right through to Malaysia and subsidies, all of this is building up to something which is going to hit young people the hardest, whichever way we look at it. it the uncertainty in the labour market always hits young people first. So that's an issue. And then the final one, mm-hmm. I have a 10-year-old daughter and she is much more expert on this than I am, right. which is the state of the planet, right? Mm-hmm. Sustainability, uh, I think amongst kids and young people, they are much more attuned to what needs to change and how to make that change happen. And I think when I talk to young people, the 
level of frustration at how slow we move as adults in making the changes that are needed. Uh, I think that's one example where the more that we can listen to young people and harness their ideas, the quicker we'll make some progress on those agendas. On that note, do you think that young people are less beholden to petty culture wars of previous generations? Because I think that's an interesting and an astute observation you make about how you know, the, the level of frustration, and you do see this among, um, let's say, younger activists on social media, mm. when you speak to younger people um, who are in tune with politics or global affairs, um, national affairs and things like that, there is this this anger towards the people who are much older. In The, the, the problems are so obvious, <laughs> and the solution is mm. also obvious. Mm. So why are you all yelling about all these other things? Yeah. Do you get a, a sense that young people are less beholden to, let's say, in the Malaysian context, um, mm. politics of race and religion mm. um, and moving more towards more, you know, like, okay, the the big goal is climate change, climate mm. crisis. Mm. I don't care about what you think about the other stuff. Mm. This needs to be solved. Do you see a I'd, sort of difference? Yeah, I, I mean, it's dang, it's a little bit dangerous for me to generalise. Right. But, but one of the things I do see is exactly what you're describing, which is that uh, it's back to the echo chamber, right? right? So if you spend all of your time uh, in the UK, in Westminster, in the one mile around the Houses of Parliament where all of the major policy, lobbying, decision-making uh, and conversation goes on, then your world is completely consumed by the day-to-day -day politics of Westminster. Right. And it's the same here in Malaysia. If you're in Putrajaya or round by Parliament and within that one mile, that's the conversation. Who's up, who's down, who's in, who's out. Young people are just completely outside of that. Mm -hmm. Everybody's outside of it. But it is what dominates our discourse. Um, I think what young people, when they talk to me, would value is that opportunity to have the conversation in a really meaningful way about the issues that they want action taken on. And uh, activism is one way to do it. Lobbying is another way. Using your vote is another way as well. Because as soon as that demography begins to change, um, we'll begin to see people listening uh, Hopefully more purposefully. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. I think that's the best word to use. Hopefully. Um, in your opinion, um, how important are educational institutions or, you know, educators such as yourself, um, other people in education, academics? Um, how important are these institutions in influencing public policy? I'm obviously I'm going to bang the drum of working <laughs> in an educational institution, you know, right, um, absolutely, because I think they're vital. Um, I came into university twenty plus years ago. Uh, I came actually to university to gain my professional qualification in youth and community work, and one of the things I said almost on day one was. Look at all this world's knowledge we have access to. Look at the resources, the academics, the, the estate we have, right? So I work at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. We have this incredible campus in Seminier. It's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. As custodians and translators of the world's knowledge, it's our duty to make an impact on the most pressing social, environmental, technological, political challenges of our time. That is the starting point for me. There's no right. negotiation on that, right? Because you can't have all of that resource and not do something meaningful with it. Right. I mean, one of the big uh, pressures on my academic colleagues is to produce 
incredibly well-written journal articles to be published world, you know, and to get the university into the world league tables. That's a really important and noble endeavor. But that journal article isn't going to make the difference or make right. the change that you want to see. So educational institutions that reach out, mm-hmm. that engage with different communities, that engage with industry, that seek to have a conversation with the public, they're the ones who are making the difference. Right. So I'll give you a really practical yeah. example, if I may. Really recently, uh, we uh, signed an agreement to develop this exciting app with a social enterprise, which is designed to help women in some of the most marginalised communities access health services and understand women's health issues better. Uh, It's involved our academics, students, community members, uh, going out to communities, training on how to use the app, evaluating its effectiveness. But more importantly than all of that, it's opened up this vital information source to women who were quite marginalised and didn't have access uh, to that, and at its worst, we're dying from a lack of access to healthcare. So, things like that for me symbolise how important academic institutions are. Absolutely. What changes do you hope to see in the future um, with regard to strengthening youth participation in politics? Yeah. I, well, I think, um, you know, I about 15 years ago, I did a study into young people's. Uh, Uh, experiences and perceptions of active citizenship. And the lessons I got from that are still applicable today. Mm -hmm. The first thing is to recognise what young people do already. And we don't do that. So there's a a very adultist view of Mm -hmm. what constitutes political participation. Uh, If you're in politics, for you, it's the vote, the tick on the vote. And if you only turn out and give me my vote, I'm I'm a happy man. Whereas actually... If you walk up and down your street or you look around your housing, you see young people all the time engaged in what we might call the daily politics, the daily social policy, volunteering, um, taking action on climate issues, taking part in World Cleanup Day or World Kindness Day. These are acts that we should recognise and see as part of the social policy conversation. I think we need to give attention to how we do citizenship education, how Mm -hmm. we prepare people. The question should never be, is it right for 18-year-olds to vote? That, as far as I'm concerned, that question has been won. It's right. done. Absolutely. It's dusted, right? Yes. The law There's is no changed. arguments there. A- end of argument, yes. right? Um, the question really should be, how do we prepare everybody to mm-hmm. participate meaningfully in democratic right. uh, engagement? So part of that is about education. Part of it's um, making things a lived experience. So not just teaching out of a textbook, but creating almost l- laboratories of democracy mm. in schools, in universities. So we, we work with our students to sort of challenge conventional wisdom, get right. them to engage in debates. In fact, this week, they're going to do a turn out the vote kind of uh, activity to right. get people familiar with G15 and understand how to vote and what the process is. So I think the more that we can do that, it's going to engender a spirit of wanting to be involved. And finally, on the public policy question, let's listen to the voice of young people, right? So if one of the tenants or components of really successful public policy is participation. Mm -hmm. So if I'm affected by the issue that you want a public policy agenda on, then engage me, talk to me, listen to my voice. Um, If it's the future of schooling, get young people involved in the education conversation. Mm-hmm. What have they valued? Don't just leave it to policy wonks or uh, <laughs> politicians to solve these solutions. 
Absolutely. And before we wrap this conversation up, would you have some final thoughts or a final message for us? Okay. Well, I guess my final message is uh, that public policy policy issues are everybody's responsibility and we can all play our part in different ways. I would say everybody out there should be having a daily conversation about the issues that affect them. Let's encourage that dialogue. Decisions are made by people who show up. Absolutely. And on that note, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. That was Dr. Jason Pandya-Wood. He's the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.